new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Uh, happy to have you here listening. And again, thank you for listening. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, listen to us two knuckleheads talk about stuff uh, along with our guest who's not a knucklehead. <laughs> we appreciate you <laughs> listening in. And uh, again, uh, thank you to all of you across the world. We hope that this podcast, uh, you know, gives you, provides you some sort of light, enjoyment, and joy in your life whatever you're facing in today's uh, world. So on today's podcast, we have with us Jane Edberg, and she is a published writer working in poetry, flash nonfiction, and memoir. She holds a master's of fine arts and studio arts, and she is a retired art professor who taught art appreciation, photography, and design at various universities, uh, as well as spending 20 years full-time at uh, Gavilan College. She is currently working on a hybrid memoir of images and prose called The Fine Art of Grieving and authors a blog and Facebook page by the same title. So on Instagram and Facebook, you can find her at The Fine Art of Grieving and her website is www.thefineartofgrieving.com. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a great pleasure. Thank you. Well, Jane, it's uh, it's always uh, interesting when I hear people's bios and what they do or what they used to do or what they continue to do. And so your life has really revolved around a theme of art uh, from yeah. being a professor and, and everything you're doing with the grief stuff. Um, how did you get into that? And, you know, was it supported by your folks? Like, so what, you know, can you talk a little about, you know, like getting into this field? Oh, that's interesting that you should answer the question or ask the question about my folks. Um it wasn't supported by my folks. I started at a very young age, and since I've been writing a lot about uh, some of my past, when I was about four or five years old, I got angry at my mother for something, and I went out in the backyard, and it was really muddy out there, and I took a stick, and I swacked the mud, and it went up and hit the flowers in her flower garden and started dripping down and I thought it looked so cool that I kept doing it, partly in anger, but also partly in fascination. And then when my mother came out, <laughs> she grabbed me and smacked my legs. And um, I thought, that doesn't matter. I would have my legs smacked to be able to do that again. So it was this discovery of this big self that emerged. And visually, that made such an impression on my brain that I thought, if I can do things that are visually stimulating – I can feel my big self, and um, I've been hooked ever since. Um, I also um, used to do a lot of drawing and daydreaming in school and get, got in a lot of trouble for that as well, and it never stopped me. So it's it's one of those things that the power – I have a little dog right now, and it's like if you give him like a tasty treat or his food, he'll take the tasty treat, and being my big self was the tasty treat, so it was this value thing of you can smack my legs or you can like punish me, but this thing is more powerful than that. And um, making something and creating something and having a power in that and finding myself, I began to use it to resolve problems and understand who I was as a person to such a degree that I can't live without it. I actually do process everything through art and that can be visual or that can be written. That's so interesting. And so do you see that now? Because like we're in the pandemic. Do you see that now in your life on you using that? Or are you seeing that in other people's lives and them trying to use that to cope with the current situation? 
I'm using it in my life, and I think other people are using it in their lives. I'm hearing about people painting for the first time, you know, because they're they're like, I'm bored, I'm at home, I'm sheltered in, and they're finding other methods to deal with who they are in this world because they can't just, like, go off and, you know, get instant gratification anywhere or, you know, engage in their normal everyday life. So they've got these little bits of downtime, not everybody, but some, you know, a lot of people. And um, I think create, creativity has kind of creeped in for them. And for me, it sort of took me out of writing my book for a while because as a creator and as someone that, that functions by creating, I needed to create things around the coronavirus. I needed to create things around being isolated and create things around my sense of terror, like what kind of world are we living in now? And um, will I die from this or will I be able to survive it? So I've, I've been doing a lot of writing and drawing this about that, but it kind of took me away from my book. So there's a downside if you're working on a particular project, you can get hijacked by something that needs to be processed on a higher level. Um, and cor- the corona sheltering in and all in the race riots and Black Lives Matter and, you know, crucial things that need attention um, were at a higher value for needing that creative energy. So I've been working through that, learning a lot of things, too, actually, on the way. Well, I'm glad you're still learning. You can be retired, but you're still learning, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what you'd do if you couldn't do that. It'd be terrible. <laughs> I like how you really put to the, when you're looking at art or the nature or the beauty of something, that it can take you away and you're, you're seeing almost like a big self. You're taking you away from, I guess, the, the world that you normally process to this bigger part. And, you know, there's, and sometimes watching those people, like, do whatever they do, actually is very peaceful for me. Because I remember there was a, a TV show way back when it was a painter what was his name sean bob ross bob ross yes oh yeah yeah <laughs> and just okay. by watching him paint i felt yeah. it was like so meditative and i was like you're just in this zone and it was just pleasurable mm. you know like it's kind of cool and so like i can only imagine for the painter if that's just me witnessing him paint or, yeah. they, or her paint i can only imagine what it is for the person who's really involved in that state. And so you're talking about that in a, in a way, was it hard mm-hmm. for you to, can you still get there? Like, is that still a, a part you can get to very easily? Yes, I can still get there, but I have to say that it depends on what it is that you're processing. So I think, you know, the um, crises that are going on today um, and the social crises and the, you know, medical crisis, that takes a different sort of energy and it's not very meditative. But if I need to go to the meditative place, I could certainly take a piece of paper and just let lines slowly crawl across the page and just allow myself to just be with the moment and um, not let go, but just feel and be with myself as I am without much judgment. It's like meditation, right? And it can put you into an alpha state, which is, very, very good for the relaxing the body and the soul. And, but as an artist, if I'm going to process something that's super meaningful and deep, it can be very painful. And it can require, you know, going into a place that's really uncomfortable. But that's, as artists, that's what we want to do so that we can maybe bring resolve or bring ideas or bring some other energy to the problem at hand. So 
that's why I think art is really beneficial to grief because for two, those two reasons, one, one can go into the deeper, darker, hard, painful places and actually produce a, a physical thing, kind of pull it out of your body onto the page, into the clay, into the dance, into the music, or go into the meditative, comforting zone to kind of cool the body back down, cool the mind down, keep the grief kind of steady, you know, but I think it's a great way to face grief or sit with it in a more meditative, quiet kind of way. It doesn't always work. It fluctuates like anything else. You know, we're living, breathing creatures and we're always fluctuating, so it's part of paying attention to what those fluctuations are and what's what's meeting us and what, what we're meeting in, in our life um, and what we might be able to uh, do about it, you know, or how we can be with it. I recently wrote a quote, and I, it sort of just came out of having a conversation with a friend, and she said, gosh, grief is a lot of work. And I said, it is a lot of work. And I go, well, wait a minute. No, actually, it's a lot of being. It's an enormous amount of being. You know, and that if we can really be with it, it takes almost everything we have to be alive in grief and um, touch all the aspects of it and maintain a sense of, I don't think there's ever balance, but to maintain a sense of being, like I'm here, here I am, being with grief. It feels enormously difficult or it feels kind of tiring or it feels whatever it feels, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. Are you? Do you know about flow states? Like being, I do. Yeah, because yeah. that's. What's I think that's guy's what, name. <laughs> He's uh, Stephen Kotler. Stephen. Oh, Kotler. I was thinking of another author who wrote Slow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forget his name. I remember that it's guy. A long Chicksum. Yeah, it's a long name. <laughs> He's Hungarian, right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I do understand that. Uh, um. Because yeah, I, I think that's what we're talking about in in a way. Uh-huh. I mean, probably yeah. lots of ways, uh, lots of different expressions of that uh, being in a flow state. But yeah. um, I think that's, uh, it's such a beautiful thing when you're creating something, uh, whether it's writing, you know, or doing art, doing different types of artwork, or even just, you know, um, thinking about something or doing something you love to do, you know, editing, going yeah. for one. podcast, yeah. podcasting. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, you time, go. time goes by, you don't even realize it. You know, you're you're kind of uh, enjoying something. Like you connect to something different, and I and uh, that's the beauty of it. That's uh, how do you? What's your routine like? Like, did do you do you have a routine around working on a project and getting into uh, kind of a flow state? Um, I like to if I'm if I'm on a particular project like my book, even if I'm if I like when I was hijacked in the beginning of this, um, you know, COVID crisis. I like to touch it every day, which means look at the images or write some little quotes or ideas or, you know, and so even when I wasn't fully engaged in doing my, you know, 700 to 1,000 words a day, I could just touch in. And that's important because I feel like if I let it go um, a couple of days or two, three days, I have to come back and work out where I was again. It's like having a a deep conversation with a friend and it gets heated and you're trying to work out and solve a problem and then you're away from it for a while and then you come back and you're like, well, where were we? You know, and you have to like sort out where you were and then pick up, try to pick up where you, the thread. So I do have a daily practice and 
sometimes it's super fruitful and I get a lot of words done and, and actual good words. And sometimes I do some writing and it's terrible. And, and sometimes I'm just touching it. I'm just looking at it um, to stay connected, to make sure it's like, hello, I'm still here. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll try to engage you, you know, but sometimes that doesn't work when I'm, you know, being pulled in some other direction. Yeah. That's how it works. And how, no, that's interesting. How do you manage those emotions after the act? Cause like, Oh, good. Good. Right. Question. Cause if you're obviously if you're, doing something that requires joy or happiness then you you don't need to i guess get out of that space you can allow it to kind of fizzle out throughout your day and dissipate yeah but if you're dealing with like some really tough uh like fear and anxiety and you know you're pulling out some emotions mm -hmm. and using it what's yeah. your next few hours and the rest of your day like well, that's a great question, and I think it depends on where you, you went with a creative project. So, for instance, when I was working on the um, just some writing and, and uh, drawings around, um, you know, the coronavirus and uh, the, um, the Black Lives Matter stuff, I didn't mean to call it stuff that sounds kind of horrible, but you know what I mean, I, I, I then sometimes would... Uh, hopefully come to a place where I have like a little nugget that I can hold on to that helps me to understand what I need to do next. You know, like I like the minute anything becomes static, you know, out of flow <laughs> or not moving is, is the hardest part. It's like if you're just holding something but not doing anything with it, that's incredibly painful. Mm. So even if I spent time writing in that way and I'm just like stuck, then when I come out of it, I'm still stuck. I haven't moved anywhere. I haven't received anything. I haven't given anything. I haven't really dislodged um, or, or, you know, opened up that floodgate, you know? Yeah. So, and then, like, on my particular project, The Fine Art of Creating the Memoir, I had, I had to process through therapy a lot of what I went through before I could actually sit down and write it because it was too painful to even put a pen to the page. And so now if I write about, say, there was an eyelash that was sitting on my son's face when he was laid up, you know, dead at the viewing table, and my friend saw it and he licked his finger and then tapped the eyelash onto his finger and put it in his wallet. And I wanted to write about that because it was something so profound about keeping, like, you've lost this whole person, but you could preserve one little thing. And the eyelash, I write a whole piece about just the eyelash and that it's a container, it's a vessel, it has its DNA, I could make a new Nanda. You know, it's like it has all this quality to it and it starts representing all these different things and how we hold on to stuff. And then he tucked it away and his friend tucked it away in his wallet and then he lost his wallet. Mm. You know? So it's, so writing about that was painful, but I discovered in the writing places where I could hold my son and remember him in these really interesting ways. I would never have thought to hold him as a Viking. And I thought of his little eyelash as like part of a Viking horn because we're, that's part of our ancestorship is, is Vikings. And so I, I saw it as a representation of a Viking. I saw it as a representation of a vessel. And I could hold 
you know, parts of him in my mind in these poetic ways, which somehow was comforting. So when I came away from the writing, it's like I just created a new relationship with my son. It's not the one that I wanted, but it's the one that I can have. And it's what I want to do now. I want to continually nurture and engage my relationship with my son, even though he's not truly here in body. I don't even know if he's here in spirit, but he's here as my memory and as my cherished loved one. So, you know, finding these incredibly metaphoric, poetic exchanges with thinking and writing and drawing and making pictures about my life with him um, has given me a, a whole big wellspring of being able to, uh, the best way I can put it is that when I look at things now, I go to the mountains, I see him there because I've done so much exploration. His ashes went into the ocean, the ocean evaporated and put moisture into the air. The air carried across the mountains and laid moisture into the mountains and like it's the air we all breathe. And so he's constantly moving around in different places. So it's just this, you know, imaginative, metaphorical way to fill that space that's so enormous. And it comes from love. And it comes from um, a sense of taking care of myself by, it's almost like a a reward. This reward's the wrong word. It's like a, a gift. Going in and and finding these incredible little details um, that I would never have thought about if I'd allowed myself to stay stuck in the in his body just being dead on the table. Yeah, that's actually you know really interesting perspective in how you're seeing it all. Right, very creative in how he's everywhere and he's still. It doesn't matter to say like your spirit or not. It's not the issue. It's just like in these moments, you're yeah, he's there. And it reminds me of like making your big self bigger. And you just realize it's just like, you know, like, because love really is like, I like to think is like love is the big self. And like, how long can you hold it and be a part of it? Because all those people that we've come across and all those people that have touched us are a part of the love we now hold. And if we can get there, right? Like some people through art, other people it's through whatever, right? Dance or, you know, podcasting. But it's nice if you, you are able to get there. And yeah. to be there from the darkened state you're in. And I want to sort of go back to his death, because you did mention something that was interesting, that you had a hard time writing and a hard time doing uh, any kind of art um, after he died. And so could you talk us about that process? And like, so what is it like yeah. now looking back and having that period where um, there was a disruption in your normal routine? And you know, it's what's really super interesting about that and one of the hardest things to write about in my book is that when he died, I was dealing with his loss as the most, as the, you know, the biggest thing possible that could ever happen that's so devastating. And then right next to it, I lost myself. And, and a lot of people say that when they lose a loved one is that they, their self is like a big chunk or even all of them, their self is so changed by it. But that, that that's gone, that, that previous self. And in that, I was convinced that the art that I, my ability to make art, my ability to be creative was also taken with that. 
because I could no longer go back to the work that I was working on because I had a particular body of work and a you know, particular idea and these stories from my past and you know, making these paintings and um, photographs. And then that is when I, that was done. Like I, I couldn't even enter it. And I thought, that's it. I can't do anything. But what in the writing of the book, what I realized is that that whole first year was full of creativity and full of art out of my control. It was in total autopilot. So because I like to be in control of my art, I didn't think I was making it, but it was being made. I did so many things, and they were just in reaction to, like, for instance, when um, I went to his um, house to clean up his things and put them in my car and take them home, there was a red blanket that I bought him when he was, like, 13 or 14, and he's had this blanket forever and there it was, this thing that had wrapped around his body so many years. It was like this huge, like, touchstone in terms of connecting to him, like his blanket. And um, it became symbolic in my mind, but I wasn't consciously thinking about it. And when I got home, one of the first things I did was I took it into the garden. And the garden was, like, really run down, full of, you know, fava bean stalks that there was no green. It was just like these these chattering bones in the garden. And I went in there and I wrapped myself in his blanket and took photographs to bear witness of how much I missed him and that I was so attracted to sitting in these, you know, brittle stalks of what was once um, held life, this garden that was lifeless. I went and sat in them with this blanket with this look on my face, like I could never make in a million years, it's like this horrible, you know, grief-stricken face, because I wanted to know later what that might look like, and I kept calling it documentation. But when I look at it now, they're artworks. They're actually representations of the human condition. This is what grief looks like. And so that was, you know, the fine art of grieving was born out of making images the whole time that I've been going through grief, not even thinking that it was art until my daughter said, this is art, mom. And I went, really? Like, I was like, sort of fooled myself. It was strange. It took me a year to wake up and go, oh my God, I could do this with intent. I'm still an artist. I still have creativity. I just wasn't recognizing it. The whole time. And in fact, the grief, I thought the grief killed creativity and killed art. It doesn't. It actually makes people do things out of the urgency of themselves. They're totally deep, inner, most vulnerable selves. That's art, you know. The desire, the struggle, the yearning, that's art. And so it came from this very, very raw, authentic place. And I just wasn't recognizing it because part of me, the, it's probably the small small me with the big ego, thought, hey, I'm not in control of this. I don't, don't even know what this is until I realized, wait a second, this is my big me speaking. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> it's, um, Thank you. Because it's, it's beautiful because it's real and it's raw. And you've taken mm-hmm. an aspect uh, of life that's dark death. And it's the opposite of growth. It's it's deceased. It's 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 taken its turn. But you, you know, you're almost in a process of you know almost a ritual 
you know, and that's where it made me think about rituals in a lot of ways. Cause like sometimes rituals are like that where like you're not in control. It's just, you're going with it and the emotions mm-hmm. and the events of the time, they almost cemented in your mind. You know, you could talk about even singing. Uh, you know, uh, we've talked about keening, you know, at the Irish mm-hmm. wake, like singing yeah. is an is an art form. And that's a, that's a song. That's a morning song that's given mm-hmm. or, you know, j- the act of uh, the ritual of, you know, lifting a casket up and carrying it with other pallbearers. Like um, I see, I see that as art in in a way. I do too. Absolutely. Right. It's tied to the raw emotion of it all. And, and that's something that, yeah, go ahead. It's the human expression, you know, and I think that it expresses itself. And if other people see it, they go, well, I'm going to express myself that way. And pretty soon you have a lot of people expressing themselves in similar ways. And then we call it a ritual. And then it's a shared, it's a handing down of try this, try wailing, you know, try um, doing the haka, you know, dance. And the New Zealand, like that's like such a powerful, beautiful art form. And it made me think like um, there's a woman, I can't think of her name. I'm sorry, I can't remember the artist's name. But she went around to record grieving rituals and she realized that all of them were art. So she showed them, invited these people into a space uh, held held by a museum and, and brought whalers into the museum and people who had written songs about grief or a sacred chant, you know, or ancient Greek kinds of uh, poems that had been handed down for hundreds of years. They were all parts of different rituals and different ceremonies. Um, and different people's uh, ways of grieving, a lot of them rituals, and they were art. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it makes perfect sense to me. I just didn't know I was doing it because I had this very, you know, constructed view in my head of what art is supposed to be for me because that's the way I've always done it. And here I was actually going back to swacking the mud onto the flowers and, and seeing something and just documenting not even I didn't think that was art when I was a child I'm looking back and reflecting on it and going that was art I was making art because I remember what it looked like I remember what it felt like and it was visual and it's and it was an art form that was sort of like performance art you know yeah my mother saw it as total destruction but (laughs) (laughs) that's so interesting and like what a way to reframe it all and to see it so differently and you're right I think art is really based on your perception and Mm -hmm. you're stuck as you said like you had this idea of what art was for you and then the grief like throughout the year when you're looking back you realize no way it was art i just didn't see it as that and then you realize Mm -hmm. you were doing art all along and how what a place to be in the mind because like Uh, to realize you're you just did something that you thought you never did like like what is it? It changes everything, right? It changes how you perceive your own identity, how you right. how you see yourself as a child too, as you know, putting that stuff on the uh, flowers, and then you realize, do I ever stop making art? You know, like yeah. when you look at your life, is like every minute of your life a part of your an art form that you're painting? Well, I, yeah, I believe that uh, everyone is making art all the time. Um, and that we've, you know, culturally just identified art as paintings and uh, they go in museums and when a person can draw an apple and it looks like an apple, you know. But I, I really do think that, uh, you know, in 
day-to-day living, we're constantly uh, problem-solving and trying to find ways in which to express ourselves and to try to understand things. And that's all art. And, um, and some people, you know, then begin to study ways in which to intentionally be creative about how they're going to do that. They make choices. Like, you see that, like, you can just make a sandwich or you can, you know, make something that has super beautiful garnishes and place it nicely on the plate and maybe it has a sauce that you experimented with. That's art too. It's just a, you know, there's just sort of different varieties and levels and hierarchies, I guess, of art making. But some of the best art making comes from purely just doing something that comes from the gut, and you, and you, your head might go, well, that's super weird. I better not do that. But instead, you go, well, that's kind of strange. I think I'm going to do that, and then you do it, and it's a remarkable result that something is learned from it, and. You know, we get really caught up in, you know, thinking people are going to think we're, you know, too odd or out of place or inappropriate or whatever. And I think that art is sometimes inappropriate. <laughs> you know, I I use the example of the the point at which my daughter said to me that it looked like I was making art is I had just finished putting my face into a bowl of my son's ashes. And I lifted my face up and there was ash all over my face and falling all over my clothing. And I just felt compelled to do that and I just did it. And she walked in on me when I did that. And it was like, and soon after that she was asking me, you know, did I need help? Not psychologically. She meant, do you need help photographing this? Because my camera was in the room. And I said, yes. And she photographed me. So it's, you know, that's, super weird, right? Because it doesn't seem like, we've never heard of people doing that before. This seems like maybe even kind of, a, maybe it's not right to do that with somebody's ashes or whatever. There's all kinds of judgments, I'm sure, but for me, in that moment, that was the very thing that I needed to do. And out of that, I discovered that my son wasn't there. It took me doing that to go, he's really not here. Yeah, that's that's uh, very interesting. And it's, what is it about humans that we want to go there. We want to express that grief in those interesting, unique ways. And what is it that like being creative, being quote unquote artistic, um, those are just choices I think in life. Like, you know, it's, it's, I, I always, um, there's a, I always see these quotes on, on Instagram and stuff about, well, I think it was like Bill Gates wears the same thing every day because he doesn't want to make the, the, the spend the energy to make those choices. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, I think it was like it was the founder of Twitter, somebody. So he wears a you know black shirt, black pants, whatever, because he doesn't yeah. want to waste waste his energy. He wants to be efficient. And okay. like, but there's the opposite of like someone who decides they want to add color or they they take the time and they they put a lot of intention into what yeah. they're wearing and what they're going outside and doing. And, and that's an act of expression. And it can be artistic and creative. And people might call that, oh, you're creative. Well, that, that's, that's their need to be that, to have that expression. And that's like, you know, kind of, you know, with you and, and the grief in the morning and, and what you've gone through and, and you know, it's, and, and what a lot of humans go through. It's like, what is that yearning? 
to express ourselves through different types of whether rituals or artistic you know expressions in this terrible tough time of grief and then it's incredible um you know maybe that's something that other people will start to look at in terms of putting their face in the ashes or maybe doing something creative with ashes and see is oh you know this this actually helps me process something or this helps me create something else i don't even know what that mm-hmm. what that intention is or the outcome but it's it's mm-hmm. interesting what what people crave yeah i think that um there are two things um the idea of putting one's face in the ashes or doing something that's like doesn't make sense um is that absurdity actually has a lot of power and that if you try try to think about oh my son is dead that's that's a terrible thing what does that mean he's dead why how's that possible that he's dead you could do that over and over and over and over again and then you start to investigate and look at it in different ways for a friend of mine who lost her son she saw that he had a kleenex in his trash can and she actually took it and and took it home and didn't tell anybody she felt ashamed for stealing a you know soiled kleenex but she felt like part of him was in that Kleenex. And she later made some art out of that Kleenex. And it's like some people go, ew, that's weird. But to her, she actually realized that, you know, he he is gone. And this is how I'm going to process this, is by doing the things that might be a bit different to try to get at every angle. I always think of it as not leaving any stone unturned. Like, what else can I do to acknowledge the loss you know even if it seems weird it's like the more i do that i'm going to touch on something in different ways Mm -hmm. it's taking a different point of view a different perspective you know and that always is good but we get comfortable in seeing things the same way but that doesn't get us anywhere we don't really learn when you see things the same way over and over again although you know this may be said to be you know growing up in a town for the your whole life and you get to see how that changes and so forth. So that would be the same thing, you know, being in one place for a long period of time. But, you know, never really um, investigating things in ways that you haven't tried before. So as an artist, I feel like I'm always trying to think of new ways in which that I can approach something. And his ashes, it took me a long time. It took me about a year to get to his ashes. Yeah, I did all kinds of things. I sifted them, I... I may, I wet them and they change color. There were all these properties that were happening. And within the properties of the ashes, I discovered things about death that I knew nothing about. I discovered that, you know, that our body can be reduced to nothing. But where did he go? <laughs> you know? It's just yeah. weird. Everything about it is so weird. I'm trying to think of... About, like, oh, go ahead. Yeah, just, just, to, just to jump in here. Like, it, it makes me think of, like, it's very complicated for me to try to understand what that end product is. Like, like raw emotions come in. It's it's it is what it is, and then it becomes something different. And what? Why does it become something different? And why does it change? But it's like you have if you're cooking, you have ingredients, and then you put the ingredients together, and then the dish becomes something different, and or can have potential to taste good or something else. Right. And like it's like you have raw emotions come through and 
you could sit there and have those thoughts circle throughout your head, but when you maybe apply them differently, you could even think about them differently, but if you can apply them differently, whether physical or, you know, in a mental state, I think that can change the emotion. And that's, I think, tied in some way to a continuing bond. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention yeah. is that I was visiting this, um, this uh, church and uh, they had the tradition of keeping the bones of uh, saints. And so oh, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's something that's, it's been a part of, you know, human, human civilization and in, in our history of like, you know, what is it, what made them think about that? What made them think that, Hey, I want to keep, you know, the, the pinky yeah. bone or the cloth or, or whatever. Um, yeah. And it really, and it changed my mind state. Cause we've also interviewed a guest who they're, they're, um, they have like a pet um, service where they actually uh, it's a taxidermist they actually keep parts of the animal for the person who's lost the animal for the, the parent, I guess. And so yeah. initially you might think that that's, Oh, wow, that's gross. That's weird. That's odd. But like, there's some connection there. There's some meaning that's really important at that for that person. And so it's, it's hard for us to understand hard for me or other people to maybe look at that and maybe if you're a pet owner maybe it's a little bit easier to kind of understand what where they're coming from but i think mm -hmm. that's a that's a is one of those things that's you know odd different you know a little bit maybe we've veered away from that and so it's hard to process of like what that's not normal quote unquote but i think it's right. very it's a process right yeah yeah, and as uh, for I don't know when I first got the idea that you know not being like being a weirdo or not being normal was kind of okay with me. I <laughs> I think I've always been a bit of a dork. Anyways, I never I, I never took to doing things the way people like to do things. I've <laughs> always kind of had my own mind, and um, I'm sure that that was hard for my parents. But I was an only child, so it wasn't too terrible. But yeah, so I'm I'm not too concerned about uh, doing things out of the norm, but I've become very conscientious of it um, because of writing this book that when I share this with other people, that other people are going to think it's strange. And I've had people say to me, ooh, that's kind of gross, you know, or mm. or whatever. And um, I'm like, yeah, okay, that would be for you probably, you know. I mean, that's okay. But I needed it to to understand what I was dealing with. Why did you? Why did I have the choice of being given these ashes? And what are these ashes? And what am I to do with them? Well, why do I have to do with them what everybody else does with them? They like sprinkle them out on a landscape or dump them in the ocean or whatever. And I've done all kinds of things with them. I've even drawn with them. I've put them in ceramics and fired them into vessels. I've actually made them a material, an art material, because I knew at some point, this isn't my son. This came from my son's body, but it's not my son. So it's a, it was a weird, it actually helped me to um, let the body part go. That sounds really strange. <laughs> but, yeah. No, yeah. we all, I feel like we're all processing differently. And I think what's great about talking about it is that people can now expand their understanding of what they do to what other people do to reduce some of that yeah. structure. 
right? Because the first thing you say, like, oh my God, I can't believe they, but no, it's just different, you know, and you just, yeah. just haven't heard that before, but yeah. it helped. And if it helped, you know, for you to process the loss and didn't hurt right. anyone, then, you know, see it. For yeah. what it is. It's a beautiful change in the structure of what's normal. Yeah. At one point I thought I might write, write another book because as I was telling people, I did some presentations in various places and with large audiences and, you know, um, some po poetry readings and so forth and image shows and galleries and stuff like that. And of some of the work that I've done and uh, people would come up to me and go, oh my gosh, you know what I did? <laughs> people told me some pretty <laughs> wacky things, you know, and it was thrilling because they had never told anybody because they thought it was like out of the norm, not okay, their little secret. And it's not a secret, you know, it's like it, 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 it can be shared. And I think one of the things that was most distressing in grief, being in grief, is that it was treated a certain way. It was encapsulated in a given kind of institutional approach to what you should do about it. Go to a grief group, get a therapist. All those things are good things, mind you but not a whole lot about how to process it creatively. And I know there's art therapists out there that are, you know, know how to do this and, and encourage it, but it's not the norm. It's not the, there's not a big push for that necessarily. And I think that we'd be better off if there was more uh, fluidity in the grief process and allowing uh, people their feelings and there's not a time frame for it. And there's all kinds of ways in which one can, authentically express and reveal and dig and excavate and categorize and inventory their grief experience because it's actually beautiful. It's a really powerful, one of the most powerful processes I have ever been through and I'm a better person because of it. I'm sorry I had to lose my son to go through that, you know, as it's kind of, but I see it as, it's not, you know, that's a whole separate issue, but the issue of the actual grief process is um, if you allow it and if you get into it and you, you know, aren't staying and you go in the flow of creativity and you face it and you, and you get into it, you have to give yourself breaks too. But I think that that has allowed me a much richer, fuller life, a much better self. I developed a better, stronger self out of it a new life that is more meaningful because it gave me the opportunity to go in and um, really give to myself what was taken away, you know, give myself in. It's not a replacement, but it's, there's a huge space when there's grief in order to investigate, uh, be, find oneself, renew, rebuild structure. That's my, you know, my experience and I don't know what other people do, but, I'm better from it. <laughs> you know, I don't, and I don't feel, in, I'm not in grief anymore. And, and, and I think it's okay to be in grief if you want to be in grief. I'm not saying that the goal is to, you know, get out of grief, but my goal was to heal the grief because I, I didn't want to feel hurt my entire life. And I wanted to, for me personally, I don't think, I don't make judgments on anybody else about it, but knowing my son, I wanted to honor him in terms of what he would want me to do too, you know, and he would rather that I not feel in pain about his loss. I know that for a fact. It takes time to, to heal that and it takes creative ways to explore those emotions. And that's the, the big thing that I'm hearing is just like 
finding new ways to explore new emotions because the old yeah. ways sometimes just don't work. And oh, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. yeah, and I'm glad you're able to share your story about the ashes because you're right. I have no idea what people do with their ashes. If it is different, they keep that hidden. And, and that's very something similar to the grief dreams and why we started the podcast is to really mm-hmm. shed light on a, a topic that a lot of people keep hidden. Um, yeah. And you realize that there's such a wide variety of stories and images yeah. and same thing with, you know, dealing with the ashes. So I think it's great to allow people to voice that and be able to reach out to you and voice that because it is something if that, they want to, you know, yeah, if, if no. they want to, because some people are deeply private. I have another son who is, you know, he's in his forties and he would rather not talk about it, you know, yeah. but what's interesting is that he's helped me make some of the artwork around it. But he doesn't want to talk about it, but he will process it in his own way and has, yeah, you and know, that's, and that's, you know, it's tricky. <laughs> it is, but it says like it's giving people that window to know that it's okay to be different yeah. and mm-hmm. to be able to process it differently. And I think that's sort of the, the message there is that there's different ways and you're giving an mm-hmm. understanding of there is this bigger way of processing ashes than most people know about. And I think that's amazing. So I'm curious yes. about your dreams. So do you... Yes. Is your are your dreams very creative or like how what are your dreams like? Because with the way you see if I could see your dreams being somewhat more creative than maybe others. Um, I don't know about that. I, I know people that are, you know, would consider themselves to be sort of like mainstream, maybe even slightly boring, you know, engineer minded people that have crazy dreams. So but I do have interesting dreams and I took a class from Charles Tart who wrote the book Altered States of Consciousness and he had us do this was at UC Davis he had us do some experiments with dreaming and he'd have us wear like a rubber band and then if we knew we were awake we'd get to like pluck the rubber band against our wrist and that would kind of slow, sort of wake us up or we could ask ourselves are we awake are we asleep can we stay dreaming and uh, over time, I actually could actually be be somewhat awake and dream and be able to control my dream and that sort of thing. So I've always loved all that. I, I, I love anything that has an altered state to it, you know, of understanding things and seeing things differently. And so dreaming was always different for me after that because I had different entry levels into dreams and I could control or just go with the dream. So I had some consciousness and dreaming which was helpful for also remembering dreams but the two dreams that are most remarkable actually there are three dreams that are most remarkable and um i i think it's really boring to tell a whole dream but i'll give you the the gist of it is i had a dream before he died and it was in uh two days before he died um that night i dreamt that a sheriff came to the door and said that my son was in critical condition and would never be off of, you know, respirators, and he was complete vegetable, but he was alive, and they were keeping him alive, and should I bring him, you know, to your house, and uh, or what would you like us to do? And I'm like, I just said no. I, and I didn't even think about it in the dream. I just told him, no, don't bring him here. And he said, should we bring him to your son's house, your other son's house? And I'm like, no, just don't bring him anywhere kind of thing and I'd close the door and it was then I woke up like jarred out of that dream and I felt guilty I felt 
like just damaged from the dream. Like, how can a mother say no? What the what's going on? And um, I was going to tell my son about the dream, and I thought, no, that's kind of weird. I'm not going to tell him this dream. And then um, two days later, he died. You know, and it was a terrible accident. And that, you know, was a real weird way to go into his death, not having ever told him, wondering, was it a premonition? And I'm not even, like, deeply seated in the premonition idea or, you know, I don't have one belief or another about it, but it was very disheartening. And then... Hold on, hold on. uh, I think it's very interesting because a lot of traditions and religious books have these premonition dreams within it and there's some research on it too so they do exist and it's just like is it or was it you know like who really knows but it's just like looking at it as have you had that experience before was that a common dream you had of your your children and if it's not then it's something that is very unique to the moment and then that Mm -hmm. builds the story I right, think that right. and sometimes, you know, maybe sort of mother just there's something that a mother feels and, you know, who knows how, yeah. right, or, or what or whatnot. But it it makes you it keeps in your memory anyways, because it is part of your yeah. you talk on the podcast and you're, you're mentioning certain things and like you're you're painting your own picture within this hour and a bit of your grief story and you're putting in this dream. So it meant something on your journey. And so how did you process? Yeah. Did you like how did you process that as you went forward? I just, I felt like I, it it was funny because I felt like if I go back to sleep, I might be able to go back and change the dream, you know, like (laughs) totally illogical, irrational, you know, belief, belief in that if I could just, um, I could undo this somehow, you know, that he doesn't have to be dead. I can fix this. And and that went on for a while. And I I don't think that's that unusual either. I've heard other people um, uh, since you know talk about that and um and i felt sort of there was shame around that too like what am i you know like am i i'm not stupid come on this is like i'm a logical person what's going on here you know i'm science minded come on um but i still in 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 this sort of dreamy state of grief was like bargaining like any possibility i'll just go back in the dream and tell the guy yes bring him bring him right now you know and so, yeah, and I had a lot of, because the dream was so profound and so connected to his death, I worried that I caused it somehow too. You know, all these illogical, crazy, but they're all stemmed in these super heightened emotions. And I took some time working with a therapist and, you know, really understanding that I really had nothing to do with him dying. And then I... And then, of course, I went through the whole inventory of all these other possibilities that I did that caused him to die, which I think is also very common. Um, but that dream was like it really hung in there. Yeah, like I've I've heard stories like that. I think we had a couple people on the podcast, I recall, that have had similar experiences. And it's really, just, yeah, it's like changing your perspective on it and understanding that it's more, if it if you do believe it's something more of like some kind of premonition, it's just like that you couldn't change it. It was more of preparation for an event that was happening. That right. You almost, and then, right. Yeah. And that's the big thing it can release the guilt um, for for those people who think they could have stopped it or something. Right. Or change. Right. It right. Yeah. And that um, because I had the dream and didn't mention anything about it to him, 
I felt like I could have made him be more, you know, careful or, you know, something like that. So I felt how, like I didn't trust my own dream, you know. <laughs> right. Weird. How, how did he die? He, um, it's a it's sort of a long story, but I'll make a short version of it. He got off work and uh, the way to get uh, home from work is to go down the railroad tracks because uh, that was the easiest way to cross. Otherwise, you'd have to walk like two miles to get to an overpass and go over the overpass and then go back down to the other side of town. So all these young folks were like just like jetting across the railroad tracks. It was easy. Everybody did it. But he had stopped at a friend's house and had a little bit to drink and, in fact, was um, challenged to a drinking duel by this older gentleman who's in his 50s at the time. My son was 19. And um, my son got really, really drunk. And uh, But he still walked home, and he walked with another person, and they went to go cross the tracks. And she got across. She ran because the train was coming. And he didn't realize because he was pretty blotto. But he walked out onto the tracks, and then he stopped because she said the train's coming. So he thought he was stopped in the mid-zone, in the safe zone. And he wasn't. The train was a freight train, and it actually was wide enough to hit the fault zone. So he got hit. Wow, what a uh, unexpected, tragic death! Um, yeah, 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 and it's um, there's a whole history of us being, you know, walking on train tracks, and you know, uh, from the time I was little till up until his death, train tracks have been in our town and in our lives. And uh, as an artist, we used to walk out onto these one railroad tracks because they were. Um, the trains didn't use them anymore, but people used to throw junk back there. So I'd collect things to make artwork. And I used to take my kids with me and we'd take photographs out there and stuff because it was like this interesting dump zone. And um, so they all felt real comfortable on the train tracks. I never my, and I always warned them about trains, but I never in my life thought that, you know, as an, as an adult, he was a responsible adult, that he would end up getting killed by a train. That's what happens when you drink, right? Like in the sense of you, you just you don't realize as much as you know you can when you're just not influenced by a uh, substance of some sort. And it's oh, tricky, yeah. right? Life's tricky, and sometimes you know, even when you're not, you can still. I remember, I remember hearing a lot of stories when I was a kid, not um, who had like Walkmans on or something like that, and they're on the tracks, oh, yeah. and get yeah. hit because you just don't realize that you know it's coming from the other way. And yeah. like, this is this is unexpectedness of life that you don't really know and. Um, I'm really sad and you had to have your son die that way in that sort of in the sense of um, the suddenness of it all. And you yeah. said like it changes, it must change your, the way you view trains too in, the, in that aspect, which is used to be a creative way to find objects and now it is a memorial yeah. in some way, right? Like, right, right. Um, and that every train track leads to the spot where he was killed. Like every train track, you know, and it, and I, in my book, the trains start in the very beginning and go all the way through to the end. Um, that there's a connection for many, many things in my life around trains and train tracks and the death and um, you know being out on the train track um, after trying to get used to the train track and trying to not hate train tracks and trains. Um, after this, you know, so I would just indulge myself in, in going out on the train tracks and, and taking trains and just really being in a lot of pain about it. And just that was a great, that's what I talk about when I say facing grief. 
get on the train that killed your son, you know? It's like, it, it's, I think it's important because it's like, go to the root, root thing that's causing so much pain. Otherwise, you're going to avoid trains. You're going to avoid train tracks. Every time you cross a train track, you're going to, like, fall apart. And I got so used to them by just, you know, they became a part of my, a bigger part of my life that I actually love train tracks now, and I love trains. So, you know, so it's possible to, um, it's almost like a phobia, you know, that, of course, grief is much more powerful than a phobia, but the way to deal with a phobia is to face it, is to get it right up in the face of it and go, okay, what are you about? Yeah, I was going to say that. I was going to say that's the conquering the fear and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. walking headfirst into it and mm-hmm. understanding. And it's difficult. Look, we all got, we all got fear, fears in our lives that, you know, a lot of us uh, avoid, avoid those mm-hmm. uh, dealing with the fear, but it cripples you. Yeah. For it, me, it, it's, for me, it's more painful not to. And so, um, you know, it's uncomfortable to do things like face things. But then you're in an uncomfortable place not facing it, you know? So it's like, which one's going to serve you and one's not? One's going to keep you static and locked in a really horrible, dark place. Yeah. And, it, and it doesn't have to be like that. It's, yeah, and it's, it's, um, it's a challenge. It's difficult. I mean, you were talking about your older son, and um, he's, I guess he's trying. You know, you're holding his yeah. hand through that darkness. But uh, yeah. it's not everyone is built uh, like that. Well, yeah, and he chose to use methamphetamine as a way to, you know, self-medicate, which didn't turn out well for him. He's now gone through the whole process of, you know, coming off of that addiction, and he's got a, a career and a, and a nice uh, partner, and his life has changed about, but it took, you know, probably 20 years to sort it all out. So he went one way, you know. Mm. And I went another, and it was uh, that was painful too because I kind of lost him for a while. Wow, he had a lot of things, uh, a lot of shifts, not just from the death, but like family um, and your own identity. That's that's a lot, yeah. and a lot of people forget about these secondary losses that that happen after sort of right. the death occurs. I'm curious, have right. you had a yeah. have you had a dream of your son since you had that precog kind of dream? Right. Have you had so, anything afterwards of him? Yes. So I had a dream that was very, I call it a not, not a dream because it was so phenomenally um, real that it was almost more real than life itself. It was a very strange experience. But the, the gist of it is that in the dream, I was in, I came to a house and I knew it was his house in some respects, but I wasn't perfectly sure. And everything was very white. The house was painted white. I went inside. All the walls were white. Furniture's white. Everything was very white. And it was really sort of a pleasant experience. It was a, sort of like this calm place, even though I had a feeling that he might be around. And at some point, he came into a room I was standing in. And that's when it got very real. And I felt like I would, had been like transported from the dream into real life. And I said, you're dead. And he said, y- yeah. And he, and then he walked up to me and he goes, but you could still touch me. And I, and I did. And it was like, well, that's weird. And then I felt the cl- his clothing. And I was in this state of like, this is all real. 
and it's not making any sense, but it but it is because it's real. This is real right now, and I get to just be real with him right now. And something about having had that dream um, set me straight about having a, an inclination that he might be in everything, and he might be. It's not that he's totally gone. That I know his body's gone. I know that you know, whoever you are, the soul, the spirit, that somehow I don't have a connection to that. I haven't done a seance, but I don't, you know, I've done other things. I I haven't connected to that. But that in that dream, having that one moment to touch was uh, grounded me in just the molecular uh, mystery of this world. Like, that was strange. So I don't really know what's happened. I know that he's not here in the world that I that I reside in in my waking state, but he's residing somewhere in some other wakeful state that I was able to tap into, and and that happened a few more times. And I think it had something to do with, you know, we get so attached to the physical body and the physical presence. Of course, that's life. And on some spiritual level, I think it allowed me to not be so attached that's that's the best i can i can say about it that's interesting what an interesting dream and you said they were so profound so different and it shifted your understanding of grief in a way and like where where he is in in the moment right like almost mm-hmm. his his big self right where's where's his big self yeah and, you yeah. know like and you're like oh wow part of it's residing in me, <laughs> you know, like, it's just like, I can feel yeah. it, I can touch it. And it's like, interesting for you to go through that. And we talk about the creative ways we process grief externally. But yeah. you know, we fail to and this is sort of the big thing that we talk about the creative ways that we deal with grief internally. And that's dreams mm-hmm. is one of those things that we it's very still mysterious, because you wonder why hasn't these these real dreams, these monumental dreams happened more often. Why does someone have to die for mm-hmm. me to get one of these experiences? Like what's going on here? And mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's the mystery that I still, you know, sit in because I don't know. And, but I know it's different. Like some of these dreams are very different than normal dreams people have after all sorts of traumas. But you know, when someone dies, there's mm-hmm. something different that is occurring in in people's dreams in people's sleeping state and so i think that's cool you had that experience in it and you noticed that it changed in some way how you processed your grief moving forward yeah it was so profoundly real and deep and meaningful and it was him saying it's this is okay this is how it is and that um also it it flipped a switch inside of me that said there are going to be questions that are unanswerable. There are going to be things that you can't make sense of, and it's just the way it is, you know. And so on some level, I accepted that that was the case, and it it allowed me to calm down some because what was going on was I was desperately trying to figure out where he was and what had happened and how that happened and all of it, like numerous, you know, iterations of how do I get him back? Where did he go? What, what's what been done? Is this real? Um, you know, all of it, you know, all the crazy shock, all of it. And um, that was, um, yeah, so that allowed me to go, 
I'm not going to get all the answers. And I believed that at the time. I believed it. Like, that's just, I'm not. So I need to calm down. And you did. Wow. And I did. (laughs) I love that. And so I'm curious now, so in this moment, if you could have a dream tonight of him, what would that dream look like for you? You know, I really miss um, doing photography with him. We did a lot of photography together and shared different cameras, pinhole images, Polaroids, and everything you can think of in film and video and anything and visual. We did a lot of drawing together. He was a a poet, an artist, a writer. He's working on a book. He was was a really deeply creative person, expressive-wise and um, experimental and so forth. And I would like to um, do a project with him, you know, maybe just a couple hours with him to make some something. I'd like to see what he thinks of my book. Like maybe ask him, what do you think of this book that I've written? And, you know, yeah. I wouldn't ask him things like where have you been or any of that. I'm, I just don't. I think that that's like poking open something that again is like this deep hole that there's not a there there <laughs> so I mean some people say oh, you know I trade places with my kid in a minute I would <laughs> I'm like I'm where I'm supposed to be you know and um, or I give five minutes to you know I'd love to see my kid for five minutes in the real you know or bring them back somehow and I wouldn't because so much has changed and so much is different that I feel like he's perfectly where he, he is, and I'm perfectly where I am. And that's a, that was a hard one to swallow. You know, that took, I'm, you know, 21 years uh, since he died, so it's a long haul. But I can honestly say, if someone said they had this miracle and they could bring him back, I'd say, no, don't. That's That'd be way too complicated for me. Well, you know? I, said, and I it, love him, and, and I love him and miss him, but, you know. Well, it's surrendering to what what is and when you mm-hmm. can surrender to that being as you're saying right being mm-hmm. um like grief is more about being than actually yeah. working through it and so it's like but when you're in that state of being everything is it is what it is and it's okay and you realize the changes that happened within you because of it and you love those changes and i think mm-hmm. there's a part of you that loves yourself maybe more than you did prior and totally and, Right. And with that, it's like, why would I change that? And I think that's what we're really getting at, because I see that within myself, mm-hmm. too, and other guests on here, too. And how we learn to love ourselves more throughout the process of grieving is a, a something that no one could ever have trained you for. You're forced mm-hmm. into a, a spot where you had new tools and you carved out something new in your being that you never thought was possible. So I think that's yeah. beautiful that you can say that and you can get there. It doesn't make your loss any less. It doesn't make your love for your son any less it just makes for what i see your love for you is, mm-hmm. um has grown and so i think that's a beautiful statement for you to make i'm curious so when he's reading this book like what do you just reading it and then talking about it or do you want him like to read it burn it have his own ashes <laughs> and then put his face in it and then make some artwork <laughs> oh, wow that's like yeah, so right. great I, you gotta like, be creative like, in the stream like i don't well, <laughs> like, I I have I to you write that you know yeah <laughs> that is so good see you're you have a crazy creative mind 
Um, that's a great idea, you know. I mean, I'd be up for that. I think that would be. I could see him doing that too. He mm. was. He's. He was a brave kid. And, it's like that um, statement. And, uh, people say that statement: "Baptism by fire." <laughs> you know? Totally. Oh my gosh, I I forgot about that. I love that. That is absolutely. That's it. Grief is baptism by fire. It really is. It's amazing. Um, one of the things I wanted to um, uh, say is that he, uh, you had pointed out that because I wouldn't, you know, have him back or whatever like that, that that doesn't discredit my love for him because that I'm like every pore, every, every molecule in my body loves him and and desires to like see him and you know it's like I but but I do like it's interesting like. Also, every cell in my body is different, and it is in this world, and I, I, I feel like it's it's all okay and meant to be, and and, and not meant to be in the like the stupid like postcard or Hallmark card kind of way, but meant what's meant right now is the being that I'm being right now is perfect, and I wouldn't change it, and um, you know the idea of bringing him back is it's just sort of god I, I don't even know if i can put words to it but it doesn't it doesn't feel right to me like everything's been processed with him out now that to bring him back in i think i'd have to do another 21 years of grief because <laughs> i would lose what i have now and that that's pretty strange yeah i mean taken out of context it it some people might hear that and oh that sounds kind of harsh or this or that mm-hmm. but like when you take right. it into the context of your life and like you're that all those years and the journey you've gone through the the trials and tribulations you know um it, it, it's that's all a part of it it's all a part of it yeah. it's all part of life and that's a part of the journey itself and i get totally what you're saying it's just like yeah look, it's that required a lot out of you and that that was work and you don't want and you to can't undo. go back yeah you can't you, you can't ultimately. go back it's there is no me that me's gone that world's gone if he came into the world right now it'd be like this really odd um we'd have to figure it all out you know and it would be a, a really strange i don't know and what would he look like what would he be like would he be aged would he be the same you know like all it's just it's so far beyond my creative abilities. <laughs> well, it's interesting. That. And that's, I think, the, the beauty of the dream world, because you get to see people again. And you have another moment with them that you never thought yeah. you could. And also you can see them age, you know, so like you never know. Uh-huh. In a couple of years, you'll see maybe you'll see him older. Uh, I've yeah, heard that. that would be interesting. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. All right. So I think this has been a great episode and it's great to talk to you and and really learn so much about taking on new perceptions and reducing your judgments on the way people grieve and to really rather than judge it, learn from it and see if you can adapt it to your own your your own unique style. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. like grief isn't, you know, processing grief isn't clear cut and you have to go outside the lines for this one. And it may be uncomfortable, but it's uh, it's going to be your story and uh, it's going to help. And I think, you know, your story yeah. really brings that out in the sense of what a journey can be. So thank you for really sharing that and being so open and honest. Oh, you're welcome. And this is such an honor. And I really, every time I talk to you, it's so enjoyable. You have such great questions. And um, I just really appreciate your openness too. So thank you so much. Um, it, it really is a pleasure.
Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I echo those sentiments uh, from Joshua. It's uh, it was a really cool um, talking to artists. Uh, uh, you get you get something interesting out of that, and and the creativity and just just how you're describing the process. And again, um, it's just uh, sometimes we we got to not be so judgmental as society and say, listen, uh, you know, there's there's some things that things change all the time and we're all unique individuals. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know how we expect other people to adhere by our standards, but um, yeah, you know, grief's yeah. not like that at all. So thank you so much. No, if anything, it reduces us to our most authentic self, you know, what we're, we're just like, take, we become babies, you know, practically when we go there. Yeah. You're, you're welcome. Thank you so much. And so your memoir isn't done yet. And so nope. I guess people will have to follow you to, to get a notification when it's out. So where can people follow you? So I'm at the Fine Art of Grieving. It's all one word on Instagram. Also on Facebook by the same name. And I have a website by the same name. Um, yeah, any of those, those places, easy enough. Or if you wanted to ask me a question, you can send an email to jane at janeedberg.com. And it's E-D-B-E-R-G. Yeah, I'm open to, you know, questions or thoughts, ideas. And if people want to be on an email list, that's good too. Excellent. Uh, Thank you again, Jane. Um, And uh, yep, so everybody else, you can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. Uh, Thank you for those who donated. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we like to end the, the show with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.